You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jennifer Barth is an editor for HarperCollins Publishers. She works with Michael Chabon and Zoe Heller, among others. She's the editor for Sharp Teeth, the first novel by Toby Barlow. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Jennifer, you must have been a little bit surprised when you first saw this manuscript. You know, I, I was just so excited, is, is the word, rather than surprised. Um, the agent had given me a, a heads up in terms of describing it, and Maybe it was just the the day or the way she she pitched it, but I just I felt like I couldn't wait to get my hands on it rather than, oh no, it's a novel in verse. I thought, wow, that sounds different. And from the very first page, I was just totally sucked in. And to my surprise, everyone around me who read subsequently felt the same way. I did think we'd re- you know we'd get some resistance to the form. But the book, once you start reading it, it disappears. It's all about the story and the characters. Um, the fact that it's in blank verse just carries you along and does away with any of the needless extra words that might slow you down. Could you give me an idea of what the setup of this novel is? Because, it, yes, it is a novel in blank verse, but it's not your ordinary Dantean epic, is it? No, no. I mean, it's a contemporary novel. It's set in Los Angeles, and it centers around a group of werewolves. Um, But they're not your grandmother's werewolves. They are, you know, the full moon has nothing to do with their change. It's, uh, there is a turf war for dominance of uh, the meth industry, among others, in the underworld. And the different packs of werewolves are battling one another for territory, for um, revenge in some cases. Much of the time, they uh, take the form of men, and they only enact the change from time to time. And they're never even referred to as actually werewolves. Um, They really are dogs, wild dogs. And the premise of the book is that our main character, our hero, um, as it were, Anthony, is an unemployed guy having a hard time finding work, and he answers a want ad for a dog catcher position. And it turns out that there have been these reports of wild dogs um, roaming the canyons and terrorizing people. And he takes this job and finds that that is an understatement and unwittingly falls in love with a woman who is the the female. There's only one female per pack. and what happens with their romance and a lot of other subplots surrounding it is what makes up the the narrative uh, spine of the book. You mentioned earlier that this came in through an agent. Could you talk about the different ways that you, as a, you're sitting at your desk, it's Mm -hmm. nine o'clock, Monday morning, you've had your cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. How did you get manuscripts? Um, Mainly through agents. I know there are some people who are really... um, great about trolling the internet or um, literary journals or bookstores for um, self-published books and finding people who are not represented, I tend to uh, get most of my submissions in from agents. And in this case, uh, Toby's agent is a woman I've known for many years, and we were having lunch, and she said, I've got this book for you. She had brought it along, the manuscript, and said, you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. Let me tell you what it you know, what it entails. And like I said before, I was just immediately 
intrigued and wanted nothing more than to get back to my desk and start reading, which I did. So, you know, by and large, you get a pitch. Sometimes you're pitched with the manuscript sent along. Sometimes someone will call you and just say, does this sound like something that would interest you? And sometimes you say, actually, it doesn't sound like it's for me, but you should try my colleague so-and-so. So you do your reading at your desk then? No, I mean, I'm I'm being a little um, metaphorical there. Usually, I will wait till I get home to, to read. And sometimes I will leave early to start in on something if I think it's going to move quickly, you know, because other people are reading books when you are ordinarily. Every once in a while, you'll have something exclusively or be one of just a few editors that are seeing something. Um, but Every once in a while, you will actually shut your door and start reading at your desk. But it's uh, it's rare if you have a full um, plate of, of books coming up. Do you guys have a, a, a what's known as a slush pile and interns to go through the slush pile? Do you take submissions that way? You know, I don't believe that we do. I've only been at Harper for a year, but I'm pretty sure that uh, most of the major publishers, uh, for legal reasons, slush is returned to the authors with a, you know, a regretful reply suggesting that they try to place their work with an agent first. Now, when an agent brings you a, a, a manuscript, is it always the full manuscript or do you sometimes no. just get a pitch? Um, with fiction, it tends to be the full manuscript because it's very hard to judge a novel, um, less so a, a body of short stories, but a, a novel on the basis of a pitch or even a a partial manuscript. If it's a, a novelist with whom you've worked before or who has um, a lot of novels under his or her belt, they they will sometimes just give you the, the setup or the first couple of chapters. But I prefer to buy fiction on full manuscript because so you know what you're dealing with. You don't end up in a situation where an author might decide this isn't actually what they want to write. And more importantly, they won't have a, a deadline that's set for them to finish a book that is anyone's but their own. Um, it can just backfire when an author has to work to a deadline or to a schedule that um, just might not be organic in the end. Nonfiction, you buy in proposal, by and large. So you found yourself with a 300 pages of free verse about werewolves in Los Angeles. Yes. Tell us a little bit about, did you meet the author? Um, we did meet Toby fairly early on. I think I read the book, was very excited, shared it with others um, at the publishing house. I actually acquired the book when I was at my former house, Henry Holt, and when I moved to HarperCollins, asked to bring the book along with me. And since it it was a book that was so much um, a, a favorite project of mine, I think they saw it as something that um, it was important for me to continue on as the editor, so they were kind enough to let me take it with me. So um, after I had read the book and shared it with others, we did arrange a meeting with Toby, and he came in with his agent, and we just talked about our vision for the book. He talked about his. We talked about you know ways to market it, you know format, that sort of thing. But mainly when you're meeting with an author, unless you have strong um, editorial reservations or concerns or um, suggestions, you're trying to get a feel for how they are in terms of promotion, whether they share your idea of, of how best to market the book. And because, you know, at a certain point, it's going to become a product and you want to make sure they're comfortable with that. Um, and also how willing they're going to be to be your partner in trying to uh, get the book out there and get the word of mouth out there, because that is, you know, really the battle these days. 
Could you talk about the, some of the budgetary aspects of like purchasing a, an agented manuscript and, and how you negotiate and sign the contract? Um, sure. I mean, I'm trying to think of, you know, it's a each book, it's a case-by-case basis, but, you know, fundamentally you're trying to estimate how many copies of a book you reasonably think you could sell and then try to come up with an advance that um, is commensurate. And then talking to the agent, negotiating whether they will handle the first serial rights to a book, whether you will have the foreign rights to sell, um, what the payout will be is, is, you know, it's a back and forth. But, you know, if you've worked with the agent before, if the agent has a precedent in the house, it makes it easier. But it's, it's a give and take, a back and forth. And it's something that people have been in the business, you know, for any amount of time quickly get a handle on. This book is must have presented some unusual challenges for you. Um, normally, you get a novel. We've seen a lot of novels, and you know how to compare <laughs> it to another novel. It, it, did you have to do some kind of research, like go back and read some of the blank verse epics of the past to get a sense of how this was should fold out? You know, maybe I should have, but instead, I, I'd say the the big selling point, as I presented it and as others saw it and continue to see, it, is that. No matter how many books you've read this year, last year, in the past decade, you can guarantee that you have not read anything like Sharp Teeth. That, to me, in this crowded, crowded marketplace, in this um, failing environment for for readers, we're told, is the best hook you could give. I mean, here's something completely new, completely different, and it delivers. You know, as a reading experience, it's satisfying. It's not, you know. I publish a lot of fiction. My list is half fiction, half nonfiction. And I do a variety of genres from pure literary fiction to thrillers. But I don't do experimental fiction. And I think what really works about Toby's book is it's not embracing a form just for the sake of the form itself. It's a conventional novel in many ways in terms of the story, the arc of the story, the characters, their motivations. It's you really identify with the characters and with their human and non-human struggles, and it's satisfying. You finish this book, and there's a love story that's very satisfying. Actually, actually, there are a couple. Um, there is a you know a drama um, sort of on a horror story level that's very satisfying. It it's very conventional in some ways, but because of the form and the way in which it's uh, pitched at you, it, it's like nothing else you've ever read. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned experimental fiction because of the many things that I've thought while reading this book. I never thought at all that it was experimental fiction. I, it never struck me as that. It strikes me as a novel with line breaks. Exactly. Or, you know, when Toby was working on it, what it occurred to him was that it was like reading liner notes. You know, it's more that sort of experience of it's slightly jagged, a little bit fractured, but very headily paced um, reading. And it's something that he didn't put on to a book that he'd already started writing. It just came to him in that form, and then he kept moving. So what you were handed was essentially what we saw? No, we we edited it. I mean, we had several um, rounds of editing. The book was longer. There were some subplots that didn't quite deliver, so they were excised, or a few too many characters, perhaps, and a few too many lengthy descriptions about werewolves and packs and history of werewolves, that sort of thing, Um, you know, the anthropological underpinnings, that sort of thing. Um, And then a lot of it was just cleaning up language 
excising repetitions, clarifying. You know, it's a complicated story, and it's interesting to see the various reviewers. Some of them are fantastic about how they're able to synopsize, and others get lost in, in the description and confuse the reader, I think. It's it's not easy to be succinct about a book with this many strands and um, characters. So that was another challenge, was just making sure people had a really clear sense of what was going on, because towards the end of the book, it gets quite nutty <laughs> in a good way. One of the things uh, I was wondering, did you, as you were editing this novel, do you have any kind of ancillary tools that you used to help yourself understand the, the plot strands? Because it is quite complicated. I, 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 do you use spreadsheets or, or graphs or something? <sighs> No, I mean, again, maybe I should have and maybe some editors would. Um, I wanted to be, I, I think of myself first when I'm editing something as a reader. And so I usually read a book first just to see what I'm understanding, what I'm not, whether I'm believing characters or not, and whether I'm feeling when I turn the last page that it's been a really rewarding experience and not frustration. Um so on that level, I think I always carry in my head, is this clear? Do I understand what's going on? So it's just I, I continually ask questions. I think I'm more of the, the therapist than the accountant when I, when I read a, a book as an editor. So I did just continually make sure when I was reading that I knew that it was grounded, that I knew where I was, I knew which character was which. We did come up with a cast of characters um, toward the end of the book that's posted on Toby's website, but we didn't feel we had to put it in the the book itself. And in part, that was because we wanted people to be paying attention. You know, it's a book where it's complicated, but the rewards are really worth focusing for. Now, as you're editing this, are you editing and you and cutting it down and excising plot strands? Are you? Did you edit this on pieces of paper that you'd show to Toby, and he'd come back and say, "Well, no, I really have to have this." Or was this done with word interchanging word files, or how was that done? Um, I'm trying to remember on this book. I think on the early passes when there was more flagged and more marked, uh, I sent hard copies, you know, with line edits. I, I do my editing by hand. But then sometimes if you get down to the nitty gritty or it's just a few chapters that you're doing at a time, I use the uh, the track change program and use that with an author. What I find with track change programs is if you get into a lengthy back and forth, you can start to lose lose sight of where you are and what was, what was there and what should be there now. And it, it can get a little um, confusing. But I think we did both on this. And by the time we were doing the final, final cleanup, sort of towards the end, it was all done electronically. One of the things I found really impressive about this novel was the vision of Los Angeles. I've spent many <laughs> years in Los Angeles and in Southern California. And, and I think it really it captures the, the aura, the atmosphere, the essence of what Los Angeles and Southern California are like. You are located in New York. Toby goes between <laughs> New York and Chicago. How did you fact check the Los Angeles app, um, locations and aspects of well, this novel? Toby has lived in Los Angeles, and I've spent a decent amount of time there. I know he also had some L.A. readers um, early on and later on check. Uh, there was a, a misspelling of a, of a restaurant in the very opening pages at one point that we fixed before publication. So... You know, I think between the, those two, um, you know, our own expertise and that of others, we, we felt pretty comfortable. Also, it's a mythic place. You know, I think people like New York, you know, you have a sense of, of it even if you haven't spent too much time there from the movies, from books, from um, uh, 
what else would there be? Songs. <laughs> but I think we felt on pretty good good ground there. Going through the various versions of this, can you tell tell me how about how many did passes did you take at this novel, and how many did Toby see, and did you guys ever sit in the same room and talk about what you were doing? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, boy, you know, it's hard to remember because you have to realize we put the the book to bed probably eight or nine months ago, so. If I'm a little hazy on the details, I apologize. But we probably went through about six passes. And the first pass, um, we sat and we talked about the book sort of on the macro level before I delved in with on-the-page comments. And so, you know, usually I sort of look at it like rock tumbling. You have to start out with the the big rocks before you can start refining them and, and finally polishing. And... So I'd say it was probably six. It might have been seven, given that once it was in first pass. You know, first, when you have a a book and you put it into production, it gets copy edited. And then after that, it's typeset into first pass. And even in first pass, if there's time, um, an author can polish, an editor can make suggestions and and catch repetitions, that sort of thing. So um, fortunately, we had a lot of time, in part because of the move from Holt to HarperCollins. I put the book off um, by a season. And so we had plenty of time to, to get the book right, which is something I think with any book, fiction or nonfiction, it's key if, if you don't have to be rushing the editorial process. I mean, on the other hand, you don't want to just work at it and work at it and work at it until one day you realize you've got nothing left there and you could hone too far. But but you don't want to have a book rushed, especially a book that's un, as unusual and complicated as this one. Toby works at an ad agency, and I presume they probably want him to be around during the day. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about his day job and, and how that affected both his ability to work and just how you thought it affected the manuscript, his, uh, it, him to work with? <laughs> um, I mean, he was great to work with, and he can probably speak to that better than I can. I mean, a lot of the authors I work with have day jobs, so um, or maybe half and half, I'd say. So it's not unusual to be um, in the situation where you're, you know, sending things by email and hearing back at night from somebody or having lunchtime conversations or just sort of quick phone calls during the day. So I think there's some people that they work really, really well having a project outside of their day-to-day life, and they they make the time on their own, and they spend a lot of weekends working, and it's, you know, if it's their passion and their um sort of at the same time their leisure, they they make it work that way. So I was never concerned that his day job was going to take a take away from from the book being the best that it could be. And you know, because he's a creative executive at an advertising agency, I knew that that sort of create that creativity um, part of his brain was going to serve us well in terms of visions for marketing the book and you know the presentation and you know the plot. I think it must have taken a, a certain fair amount of ego to sit down and decide you're going to write a werewolf epic set in L.A. in free verse and <laughs> finish such a such a such a work. Uh, could you talk about his, his ego with respect to taking feedback? I mean, he must have felt kind of protective of it. You know, he was great. Um, I think part of it is how you approach the suggested edits, but. You know, Toby will speak better to this, but I don't think he sat down writing this assuming it was going to be published. I think it was something he just started doing on a lark and found himself 
gaining uh, momentum and deciding he would see it through. But I think he was surprised when an agent wanted to take it on and equally surprised when a publisher, actually there were several publishers, I think, who were interested in the book. We just moved really quickly and took it off the table. Um, so with Toby, it's not about ego. And I think it's much more about that creative gene just needing to exercise itself. I mean, he's done all sorts of unusual projects that I don't think are geared toward recognition or um, you know prizes or those sorts of things. I don't know if you know that he did a um, an animated project with uh, Billy Collins where he uh, hired animators to make short movies of Billy Collins' poetry, or he's um, you know contributes to the Huffington Post. Um, he's heading up something called the Plimpton Project, which is devoted to trying to get a statue of George Plimpton erected in Central Park. I mean, he's just got a lot of ideas and energy and enthusiasm. This is a work of genre fiction. It's about werewolves. And when you enter the genre fiction realm, A, it it is somewhat uh, antithetical often, seen as antithetical to literary fiction, which, although one of your other uh, writers, Michael Chabon, unites the two quite successfully. Uh, could you talk about the getting the genre tropes right? I mean, when you write a book about werewolves or publish a book about werewolves, the readers are going to want the fantastic elements to seem consistent. You know, again, I'm at the risk of exposing my my ignorance. I'm going to say I just never thought of the book as genre fiction. I just thought of it as a great read. And I think if you get hung up on where it's going to go on the bookshelf or whether this kind of very specialized fan is going to be disappointed, you're going to lose the the purity of the vision without sounding pretentious. I think just it's an author's vision of a world and of these characters. And you have to help them see that through rather than try to get in the way with the wrong kinds of questions, which to me are, you know, who's going to read this? What shelf is it going to be on in the bookstore? It's got to be whether it works on its own terms. And I guess I say that also because I, I don't do a lot of what's considered genre fiction. I mean, I publish some crime. I've I've never published anything that's been billed as a horror novel, although I see this one is. Um, and I think, you know, maybe I saw the werewolves as metaphorical more than anything else. Um, as I was reading it, I wasn't thinking of it as a werewolf novel. When you're publishing a, a book, any book, I, I'm wondering, you have, you're bringing it out at a certain time of the year, and there are other titles out there that are coming out. And, and mm -hmm. did you, do you have to think about? Well, I don't want to bring this out at the same time that, say, Whitley Strieber is bringing out his sequel to hmm. Wolfen. Uh, you know, I think you would catch wind of that along the way from the chains and from independent booksellers and, you know, just people in the business. Although I think, you know, when you're publishing a first-time author and it is sort of a one-of-a-kind book, you're not thinking so much about who the big guns are out there that are going to try to find you. You're sort of on your own terms, and you'd be more concerned if somebody has a book that's being billed as, um, I don't know, you know, Chuck Palahniuk, if he were coming out with Fight Club at the same time as Sharp Teeth, that would be something where you would feel that the oxygen was a little um, depleted in the room if you had the same pub date and were vying for the same kind of coverage. But again, you can't get too hung up on that kind of stuff, or you're going to lose sight of what's important, which is the book itself. There's always going to be a time where it's, you know, somebody else is out there. There's always going to be another a reason to sort of duck back in and, and not put your neck out. It's, uh, there's never a good time to publish anymore. It's, uh, it's a tough business out there. 
you're you're the editor, but you you alluded to other people reading this book. How do you choose mm-hmm. the, the other readers, and how do you uh, accumulate and and deal with their feedback and fold that back into your own editorial process? Well, you know, it varies from house to house how many readers you you get before you buy something, and how many you get after. Um, in the case of bringing the book to HarperCollins, I really only had my boss, um, the publisher, read it, and he thought it was great and wanted me to bring it along. And then there were a lot of readers after the book had been put on a list and, you know, even after it had been put into production, you just get a lot of feedback. And it's often what's helpful there is in terms of thinking about the marketing and, and which consumers to reach for and how to get to them is just when you hear what people have to say about what they responded to in the book. And with this particular book, one of the things we did focus on really carefully and I think to good effect was the package. We felt like it had to look like something different, something unusual. Um, I think there was a a review somewhere that called it the made you look cover. And there was something really eye-catching and strong and bold, but not too fierce or gory or or anything. And uh, Harper everyone got that the package was going to make a big difference and worked really hard on it together. So you you actually played a part in the, in the packaging of the book, which I do think is, is really striking. Yeah, I mean, I think all editors have an opportunity at every house to, to offer up their vision or the author's vision for how they think um, they'd like to see at least a crack at um, a jacket or a cover. You know, with, with this one, actually, a British edition of the book had come out before ours, and they had the dog, but with a very different setting for him. And we looked at it with the art director and the publisher and the associate publisher and said, gee, you know, th- this just doesn't work for our market, but could we keep that dog? And, you know, at a certain point when we were almost there with the cover, um, the publisher, Jonathan Burnham said, God, if, if we could just have one extra element, you know, if, could his teeth be silver? <laughs> you know, that would be it was just sort of a wink at the at the reader from the shelf. And, you know, we were able to do that. You have to take a lot of time doing different passes and, and seeing how it looks and trying out the materials. But again, you know, as, as I said, we, we thought it was really important, and I think it has paid off. As a first-time writer, this is Toby Barlow's first book, the publicity and getting people to look at this first book, especially when it's this unusual, mm-hmm. must present some challenges. You know, I think it does, but again, going back to the it's not like anything else out there, I think in a way that does help put it to the top of the pile, um, that it's something, you know, love it or hate hate it, you're going to respond to it in some way. And fortunately, nobody's hated it so far. There's just some people who said, this is not for me. I can't, you know, it's too wild, that sort of thing. Most of those people haven't really cracked the book, I found. But in terms of talking about it, it's easy to talk about. Um, and just the very fact that it's, you know, a novel in verse is a good sort of first line. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to get some of the more established places to take it seriously for review attention, but you know we're we're getting there. And uh, I think again, the package helps, and the publicist did a really creative job with the um, press release and the Q and A, and using the the image on the the cover of the press release. And Toby has an amazing website; she was able to steer people to, and he's done some really creative um, videos, and you know animated versions of, of sections of the book, a mock public service announcement that instructs people how to tell whether your dog is a werewolf. Um, so things like that, I think they all just help build a package that's, you know, I want to say irresistible, but at least hard to resist. 
So Toby did a lot of the publicity for the book himself, some of the advertising design himself. Well, he did the website himself. That's Mm -hmm. common. Most authors um, take care of their own websites and come up with that sort of content. Um, But in terms of the actual publicity, um, you know, the in-house publicist was the one to reach out to the reviewers and the online reviewers and the feature writers and that sort of thing. And she also organized his tour, which he's on right now. Could you talk about, as once you had finished the book and, and you put your little stamp on it that says finished, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, then it goes to a copy editor. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Well, it goes to the um, managing editorial department and a managing editor you know, assigns the book to a production editor. And that person is then responsible for getting it out to copy editing, getting it to the typesetter. You know, it's a different kind of editor that takes over on the book then. But the you know, book's editor and the author are seeing all of the stages um, simultaneously. And, and I, I'm curious about the typesetting of this. Mm-hmm. When he turned it into you, I mean, when you got the electronic version, I guess it was presumably in Microsoft mm-hmm. Word. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I'm, the type, the line breaks, I think, must have been, somebody must have had to go through and, I guess, fact check, as it were, the line breaks. Yeah. Well, you know, he set them clearly in the, the manuscript. And, you know, you give instructions to a copy editor. You know, you sometimes you say, please leave in the misspellings in, you know, so-and-so's letter writing. She is meant to be a five-year-old girl who can't spell well. Or please, you know, leave the Britishisms intact if it's a British narrator, that sort of thing. And in this case, we just said, you know, these line breaks have been thought out. You know, please query if you think they don't make sense, but otherwise leave as is. And so, you know, at each stage, you know, we would double check, you know, when you read to make sure that it hasn't, uh, nothing went astray. But it, it wasn't too difficult. As a, Not uh, that I remember, at least. <laughs> As a, a, a first-time novelist, uh, once he's finished this book, uh, what what came next for you? Do you do you continue to work with him? Um, well, you know, the book, because it goes through different stages, you, you continue to work on it even after it's gone into production. Um, but a lot of conversations about the marketing, about publicity, about things he can do to keep his name out there, or she, if it's a female author. Um, so you're sort of preparing for the publication. Also, you know, trying to give them room so they can be thinking about the next thing. And Toby does have an idea for another book that he's been sort of playing out in his head. Um, but, you know, there's the balance of having the day job and not wanting to focus too much on a book once it's been written beyond what's helpful in, in trying to sell it. And, and as an editor, when do you when you hear the when you get a manuscript that's from and somebody says this is a first book, do you have a different set of assumptions as opposed to when you're handed something by somebody who's never who's you know has a track record or one of your other authors? You know, I I don't. I mean, I really do my best just to start with the book as the book and sometimes don't even read the cover letter before I start reading a book. Sometimes I, you know, I have an expectation of enthusiasm just because I liked the sound of the the pitch or sometimes because I liked the title or the author's name. Um, but it's usually, it's just whether you're you're grabbed in those early pages. And, and one thing that, that interested me was that you... It, 
throughout this, it seems you you really focus on the the whole the reading experience of the novel and try to focus on that and bring the other material underneath to 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 create a more effective reading experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, th- I think you have to, as an editor, think of the reading experience as first and foremost, because if that doesn't deliver, nothing else really matters. We've been speaking with Jennifer Barth. She's the editor for Sharp Teeth, the first novel by Toby Barlow. Thank you for joining me, Jennifer. Oh, thanks so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.